Our first scripture reading is from uh, Genesis chapter 1, from verse 26 through to chapter 2, verse 3, and then a little bit from verses 22 to 24 in chapter 2. And uh, I probably should uh, warn you that uh, as a so-called uh, last uh, sermon, that uh, uh, not to expect anything uh, out of the ordinary. Uh, we're all just servants doing our duty, and that uh, not as well as we should. So um, my uh, duty is to preach God's word, and so it is just an, another attempt to do so, Lord willing, and uh, nothing uh, special in that. So uh, just uh, the special thing is that it's God's word and it needs to be preached, and that's every week, whoever's leading the services. Uh, with that uh, in mind, we'll read from Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. And by the seventh day God completed his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. And then if you go through also to verse 22 to 24. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And uh, I selected this uh, part of Genesis 1 and 2 because in those verses that we read there were quite a few commandments that God gave to Adam and uh, also by implication to Eve. Would you now turn, please, to Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, verses, I'll read verses 12 to 16. It's the text for the sermon. And then after that, from the Westminster Confession, chapter 19, articles 1 and 2. Romans 2, from verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, 
and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And then if you look in your bulletin, you'll find a copy of chapter 19, Westminster Confession, chapter 19, articles 1 and 2. Uh, chapter 19 deals with God's law and the first two articles. Article 1, God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. And then Article 2. This law, after his fall, continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness, and as such was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments, and written in two tables, the, first, the four first commandments containing our duty towards God, and the other six, our duty to man. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us to see your sovereign majesty and glory more and more? Would you fill us accordingly with a greater desire to submit to your will and to serve you? And Father, would you increase these desires for service and obedience through the preaching of your word? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, when we think of, uh, when you hear the term Arminianism, or Arminian, I wonder if you think very much about that. I know that uh, sometimes I'm surprised at how members of our churches uh, don't seem to recall very much about Arminianism, despite the fact that we have an entire confession on the subject, the Canons of Dort but uh, they too seem not always to be very well known, at least in that, uh, that kind of detail. But uh, if we do think anything about Arminianism, probably there's one of a couple of ideas that spring into our heads. Uh, one of those might be uh, those who emphasise free will. When it comes to becoming a Christian, they emphasise man's free will in making that choice to be a Christian. Or they emphasise man's free will in continuing to live as a Christian. Or perhaps another thought that might come into our heads is that Arminians are those who reject the five points of Calvinism, Tulip. But these are not the only differences between Reformed and Arminian. It doesn't stop there. And in a way, that it's not surprising if you deny total depravity, the T of Tulip. You deny the teaching that all men are conceived and born in sin, 
and a sin that affects every aspect of who we are and renders us unable to take a single step, even a half step toward God without his aid, without him changing us, in fact. If you deny that, then it's bound to create a different view of law because law is that which defines what is right and wrong. It tells us that. So if you have a misunderstanding about the nature of sin, then it very often feeds back and creates also a wrong view of what law is and its role. Hence, in many Arminian churches today, there are misunderstandings also about the role of the law, and this is extremely common. Frequently, you get this idea, and it's one that comes out of classical Arminianism, that God realised that after the fall, man could no longer keep his law, so he simply lowered the bar and only required one law, really, and that was that man has to have faith and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or a related idea that the various laws that God gives in the Old Testament especially, including the Ten Commandments, that this has been replaced simply by love. Now that Christ has come, we're no longer under the law. That's the way the argument goes. We just have to love. You also find in Arminian churches, uh, very, very commonly, practical denials of the ongoing validity of particular Old Testament commandments, such as, for example, and this is very common as well, the fourth commandment. It's actually quite rare today to have the view that the fourth commandment is still in force, that there is still a Christian Sabbath, and that we ought to be worshipping regularly and faithfully every Lord's Day with the people of God, as well as resting from our work and so forth to focus on the Lord in between. The 19th chapter of the Westminster looks at these, some of these issues. It looks at the ongoing relevance of God's law as you go from the time before the fall to the time after. And if there is one main point in these first two articles, it is this, and that is the fact that the law of God has not changed essentially. It has not changed essentially as you go from the time before the fall going right back to Genesis 1, right through to the present day. And we see this in the text as the text considers the role of law in God's judgment of the wicked. We look at that under three headings. First of all, some general principles of judgment. Secondly, judgment of the Jews. And thirdly, judgment of the Gentiles. General principles, judgment of the Jews and then of the Gentiles. In the first place, then, I want to draw attention to some general principles about God's judgment on men and tied up with that what it teaches us about some general principles of God's law. And the first of those principles is that all who have sinned will be judged by the law and they will perish. In the next chapter, in Romans 3, the Apostle is going to go on and say that all have in fact sinned. It's not just a matter that all who have sinned will be judged. In fact, everybody has. All have sinned, Jews and Greeks or Gentiles. They are all under sin, chapter 3, verse 9. There is none righteous, not even one. 
chapter 3, verse 10. All the world is accountable to God, verse 19 in chapter 3. And therefore, chapter 3, verse 20, no flesh will be justified by the works of the law. A second principle is that mere hearers of the law are not justified before God. Only doers of the law will be justified. Chapter 2, verse 13. And that prepares us for what the Apostle is saying uh, about the Jewish nation who had in fact heard an enormous amount about God's law. They were continually being instructed in God's law by experts in the law. Perhaps we should put that in inverted commas, experts in the law, because they weren't always that expert. But the Apostle's point is that you have to be a perfect doer of the law in order to meet God's standard, which hasn't changed. You have to be a perfect doer because the standard is a standard of perfection. That is what man is measured against. In that sense, we could say, and as we also seek to apply that to ourselves, uh, we could say that our ears are the biggest part of us. Uh, We are living caricatures of what it means to be a human being. And you know you've seen maybe political cartoons or other caricatures in newspapers, and if someone's got slightly larger ears, they exaggerate them and they make a caricature and you have a, a head pictured which has ears beyond all proportion, way out of proportion to the reality, or a big nose or whatever else it is. Well, we are caricatures of what it means to be a true human being, the way God created us. Our ears are, metaphorically speaking, bigger than just about any other part of us. What I mean by that is to say that we hear so much with our ears as God's people. Uh, We hear so much about God's standards, about his righteous law, like the Jews in the Old Testament and like the Jews in Jesus' time. But our minds and our mouths and our hands are so much smaller, again speaking metaphorically, because even though we hear so much, we do not think or say or do anything near what we hear about God's requirements. What we think and what we say and what we do is so much less than what we hear from God's word about what he requires of us. And this is true with every law that God gives. It's true of all of them together and it's true of them individually. And you only have to read Jesus' exposition of the law in the Sermon on the Mount to get some sense of that. Where uh, Jesus explained the depth of the Ten Commandments, or at least he selected many of them, to show the great depth of them. And when you read that, you realise that you could take any one of those Ten Commandments and say for yourself, as you look at yourself, you could say, I have heard so much and read so much in God's Word. I've heard so many sermons talking about uh, what it means not to murder, what it means not to steal, what it means not to commit adultery. And I have put that into practice so much less than what I have heard all these years. So even if God only picked one of the Ten Commandments and said, this is my standard, this is what I'm going to judge you against on the Day of Judgment, if it was a matter of our works and our obedience to that law, we would fail miserably. 
But the reason we're being told this is not to lead us to despair. The reason we are being told this is to lead us to Christ. And that becomes clear also in chapter 3, verse 21 forward, where the apostle goes on to say that all who believe in Christ will be justified after all. Not by our own works, not by our own so-called righteousness, but by Christ's works and his righteousness by grace. And therefore, reading from that back into our text, what he means when he says, all who have sinned are going to be judged and perish, what this means is all who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will then be judged by their performance of the law and they will all perish. This is really a part of the purpose for which God gave his law. To show us the truth of this warning in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, that if you're just a mere hearer, you are going to perish. To teach us and, and drum that home so that we then seek the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemption, so that we see our need of him. And this then is the third principle here that lies behind this text, the third principle of law and judgment that if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, then you will be judged by the standard of the law, which hasn't changed, and you will fail on the day when God will bring out all of the secrets of your life. All of those secrets, as verse 16 says. And he will judge you then, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, for having done so much less than you have heard. Now, I've already mentioned that the Apostle will make it clear in chapter 3 that everybody's under sin in this way, Jews and Gentiles alike. But he has already been hinting at that in chapter 2. And we look at what he has to say about the Jewish nation in the second point, the judgment of the Jews. It comes up in verse 12, where the Apostle says that all who have sinned under the law, will be judged by the law. As you know, the members of Israel were at that time God's covenant people in the Old Covenant, first part of the New Testament times, and they were brought up under the law, as I mentioned before. They were taught it in their homes, they were taught it by prophets and priests especially, they were taught it in the tabernacle worship and later in the temple worship, and then later again they were taught that law in the synagogues. And generally speaking, they knew it very, very well. And therefore, they had no excuse. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. Luke 12, verses 47 and 48. The Jews were given much, they heard much, but they did far less than they heard. Therefore, they also needed to turn to the Lord Jesus for salvation just like any other sinner. And as I was suggesting a moment ago, that is something we need to think about too. Because in some ways, we are like the people of Israel who were in covenant with the Lord in former times. For we also are very well acquainted with God's law. 
Indeed, in the New Testament, we have those deeper, deeper explanations of the law, such as the Sermon on the Mount, which I mentioned a moment ago as well. Not only so, but we are also very well accounted, very well acquainted, rather, with God's covenant promises. And in the New Testament, which we accept and which we also have preaching about, and we read the New Testament as well as the Old and study it, in the New Testament, we see how all of those covenant promises are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know the gospel extremely well. And we know the vital importance of believing in the Son of God as our Lord and Saviour. And in that respect, we have heard more than the Jews of the Old Testament or the early New Testament. But still, despite that fact, we do far less than we hear, far less than we should. And so if we are given more, as we have been, then more is required of us. And the more you think about that and the implications of that, how much more we've been given in this time from the study of God's word. And centuries of studying that God's word and we bear the fruits of that. We have all that the reformers did and so on, the church fathers. We have all that at our fingertips today and you can find it all on your computer. There's so much we know more than previous generations and so little that we do out of what we know. And so if anybody ought to know this truth, the need of the Lord Jesus Christ, it ought to be us when we learn so much and see how little we actually put into practice what we learn, how much more we're given, how much more is required of us, how much more we should see the need of the Lord Jesus. Well, as to the Gentiles, verse 12 also has something to say before the Apostle reaches his conclusion in chapter 3, our third and final point, judgment of the Gentiles. Also in verse 12, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Now, at first sight, this might seem unfair. How can Gentiles be held accountable if they don't have the law of God, if they never received a copy of the Old Testament, let alone the New Testament, if as a parent you have a child that uh, maybe you uh, ask them or tell them that they have to do a certain task and you come back and the task is not done and uh, the child starts to get a a little bit of a reprimand for that and the child says, "I, I didn't hear you, then you might be a little bit more lenient if you believe them Sometimes perhaps you don't believe them, but if you believe them, you might be a little more lenient. You might, well, they didn't know. How can I hold them accountable if they didn't actually know? That doesn't seem fair. How can God hold the Gentiles accountable? Verses 14 to 16 explain that to us. Where we read in verse 14 that Gentiles, to some extent, do instinctively the things of the law. For example, they know that it's wrong to murder. They know it's wrong to steal, to lie, to commit adultery. Their conscience often troubles them when they do these things, even when they're in the business of telling themselves that there is no right or wrong. Nevertheless, they often feel guilty when they do these things until they harden their conscience. Or at times, on the other side of the coin, if they manage to resist temptation in some of these areas, they might think, well, 
Um, I give myself a little pat on the back for that. I feel good about myself. I have a sense of relief that I didn't do what I was tempted to do. And they show thereby that the work of the law is written on their hearts and their conscience testifies to that. Westminster chapter 19, article 1, gives us some background to this. It explains how God gave Adam law. And that's why I selected those verses in Genesis that we read at the start. The command to rule the world, tend the garden, to marry and to multiply, to observe the Sabbath and to refrain from eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He also gave a promise of life upon obedience and warned of the penalty of death upon disobedience. And when you put that together, you can understand why the Westminster says uh, and talks about a covenant uh, already uh, before the fall, a covenant between God and man, uh, meaning an arrangement involving promises and obligations with blessings and curses. And we can understand also why it's referred to as a covenant of works, because before the fall, man was not sinful and he did not yet need righteousness from somewhere else to be gifted to him as a free gift of grace through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on his behalf, the Lord would have blessed man for doing what he had heard, had he done so perfectly. And moreover, God gave Adam the ability to do just that. After he sinned, though, he needed a covenant of grace in which Sinners received their righteousness from somewhere else because they did not have it and could not find it in themselves. They receive it from the Lord Jesus Christ because we're no longer able to do the law perfectly. Now, I mentioned that Adam was given certain laws and I've given some indication of some of the more obvious ones. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but uh, an excellent book on this subject, John Murray, Principles of Conduct. In my view, every, uh, every reformed person should have it on their bookshelf. John Murray, Principles of Conduct. And it shows how the Ten Commandments were there in seed form right from the beginning. But we don't need to assume that Adam was given only law in a verbal form. It was also written on Adam's heart. And it was passed on to his descendants, as the Westminster says in Article 1 here so that all men, both Jews and Gentiles, have this work of the law written on their hearts even to this day. Some, in addition to that, read it in the Bible and they have more detail given in it and more examples of how it works and what happens and what God does when his people break that law and so forth. We're given a lot more information about that in the Bible, but some of the basics of it are written on the heart of every man. Even those who never see a Bible, they still have enough written on their hearts to hold them to account on the day of judgment and enough to condemn them on the day of judgment with perfect justice on God's part. And Romans 2.16 refers to that day. This also shows the error of classical Arminianism, this idea that the Lord 
somehow lowered the bar and no longer required of man this perfect standard. But no, the law hasn't changed. It is still the perfect rule of righteousness, as summed up in the Ten Commandments. What has changed since the fall is not the law in essence, it is man. Man has changed. And so the Ten Commandments, though they haven't changed, they have taken on added purposes in a fallen world. The added purpose of the law being used to show us our need of the Lord Jesus Christ because fallen man has changed and he needs righteousness from somewhere else. To show us also how to express gratitude for the free gift of salvation which the elect receive after the fall. The rule of gratitude as we call it. And to restrain evil in society because after the fall where the societies are made up of sinners, society needs restraint. So again, the main application of this is that sinners need the Lord Jesus Christ. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians need him as much as anybody else. Leading a good Christian life is not going to save you. Your considerable knowledge, and it is considerable, your considerable knowledge of the law, both through what you read in the scripture and what is written on your heart, shows you all the more how you have failed to act on what you know. Think how many times your conscience has troubled you during your life. Perhaps you have forgotten many of those occasions. But you're probably aware, if you think back on your life, that there have been many times when you've had a troubled conscience. Sensitized as your conscience is by your knowledge of the law from the scripture along with what's written on your heart. And so you're only, you, you should know, we should all know this very, very clearly as Christian people, that we only have one hope, as I mentioned before. And uh, I said there's nothing... Uh, special about this sermon this afternoon, and I meant it. Uh, I'm not intending to give uh, some special message that, I, that isn't in other sermons, but if I would leave any last thought, and not that I'm going to, but if I would, it would be this, that we only have this one hope, and we should know it better than anybody else, and that hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would not let us play down either your law or your gracious promises fulfilled in Christ. Father, we pray that rather we would love both, that you would teach us to love both, both uh, gracious promises and also law. Would you use your law, both that which is inscripturated and also that which is written on our hearts and reflected in our conscience, to remind us constantly of our need of the Lord Jesus Christ for our forgiveness and salvation? And would you also use that law to remind us and to teach us of the way in which you would have us respond to that gift of salvation, the response of grateful obedience? And Father, we pray that you might cause us to grow in these things as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Blessed is he who makes God's law his portion a delight. Uh, So uh, you see in this psalm that uh, it certainly never has been a kind of uh, legalism in Scripture that expects just uh, obedience out of terror of getting getting into trouble. But uh, always there has been this idea that God's word, including his law, should be our delight. And when it is our delight, it is not a heavy burden for us to strive for obedience. So to hymnal number one, we'll stand to sing, and would you please remain standing afterwards for the blessing and doxology. Number one. as our doxology, we sing number 305, stanzas 1 and 6. And just a reminder to remain seated, please, for a few moments afterwards. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.